Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my privilege to share God's word with us this morning, which comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Please give your full, undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now of the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. This is the word of God. Please join me in a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, we turn to you and ask you and pray for illumination, and we pray for grace to receive your truth this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's opponents are questioning him, and they are discrediting his ministry for a few reasons. One is that he suffered so much, and they're thinking, how could anyone who suffers that much be sent from God? Another reason why is that he doesn't have letters of recommendation. There's no one vouching for him. And that's what we read in this passage. Another reason why is they accused him of being antinomian. Anti means against or no. No means law. They're accusing him of not preaching the law or saying that the law no longer applies to believers today. And one final reason why they opposed Paul is because his ministry had no outward visible glory. It wasn't impressive. But Paul's point here is that although his ministry didn't have any outward glory, it was very powerful. And that is because of the ministry of the new covenant and that his ministry is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. This morning, we're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit and what believers should expect from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is Paul's point, and this is the case that he is making for the legitimacy of his own ministry. The first point this morning is this. 
the Holy Spirit gives us the desire and the ability to obey God's law. We're going to talk a lot about obedience this morning. But whenever we talk about obedience or God's law in the church, usually there are murmurings. That's legalism. The gospel, Christianity, is not about obedience. It's not about the law. It's all about God's grace. There are those who believe we don't have to be interested in the law. We don't have to study the law. And there are even those who believe we don't need to really obey the law all because of God's grace. Another word for antinomianism is licentiousness. That because of God's grace, you have this license as a Christian to just live however you want. You don't have to have any regard for God's word. But Paul is saying that is not the case in the gospel, and that is certainly not the case in his ministry. He points to the Corinthians and says, I don't need letters of recommendation because the Corinthian people are my letters of recommendation. Paul points to them and says, see how they've changed. How did they change? They are now obeying God's law. And how is that possible? Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about how they were so sexually immoral. They were idolaters. They were thieves. But now look at them. They're obeying God's law. Paul's saying that is proof that they are saved and that the Holy Spirit is in them. And Paul goes into this whole spiel about the old covenant versus the new covenant. He needs to educate the Corinthians and his opponents what they are to expect in the new covenant, New Testament era, which we live in still today. So quick seminary lesson here. What is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? It's not that the old covenant is all about the law and the new covenant is all about grace. Both uphold the law and uphold grace. Some people think that the Old Testament, that's about the law, and the New Testament is all about grace. Not true. Both are about the law, both are about grace. Let's look at this diagram briefly. In the garden, this is what we call the covenant of works. Adam's salvation and everlasting life depended on his works, his obedience, his performance. He failed. Immediately after that, Genesis 3.15, God enacted a new covenant called the covenant of grace. But that begins in Genesis 3.15, and it goes throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. It is one covenant of grace that is expressed in different ways throughout the Old Testament, but it's one covenant of grace. And then in the new covenant, which we live in today, it is different than the old covenant. And we're going to see what that difference, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to see what that difference is. But the new covenant, it doesn't do away with the law. Don't think that the difference between the new covenant and the old is that there's no law in the new covenant. No, there still is. Yes, in the gospel, we are not saved by obeying the law. That's true. We can't save ourselves by obeying the law. However, we're not saved from obeying the law. 
In other words, the law still very much applies to believers and Christians. Jesus, we know, came to fulfill the law, not abolish the law. That's how we're saved. Jesus didn't come and say, okay, the way I'm going to save you, because the law is so hard, I'm just going to get rid of it and throw it away, and now it's just easier for everyone to be saved. That's not how Jesus saved us. Jesus saved us by fulfilling the law. He did that by obeying it perfectly. He did it by expressing the law fully and by fulfilling the law and all of its requirements, including the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, which is why we don't obey those today. For example, the sacrificial system, because Jesus fulfilled that in his own sacrifice. So then what is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? There's one difference here that's often overlooked, and Paul explains this in verse 6. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is a big difference. The letter is the law without the Spirit. In the old covenant, they had the law, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit the way that we have the Holy Spirit today after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so when we read the Old Testament, sometimes we read it and we think, what is their problem? Like, what is the deal? Why is it so hard for them to obey God? And some of us think, well, it's because there were just so many laws. It's the sheer volume of laws that made it so hard for them to obey. It's not the sheer volume of laws. Even if they only had one law to obey in the Old Testament, they wouldn't be able to obey it well. It has nothing to do with the volume or the complexity of the laws. It's because the Holy Spirit, although present in the old covenant, was not active the way that he is in the new covenant. After Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised that he would send the Holy Spirit and we see the Holy Spirit's activity at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out and his work is more extensive and intensive in the new covenant era. This is why Paul says Moses had to cover his face. Verse seven, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. We read in, in Exodus one of the reasons why Moses covered his face is because they were so afraid and they couldn't look at his face because it was shining after Moses came down from Sinai talking with God. But Paul elaborates here and gives us another insight as to why Moses covered his face. He didn't want the Israelites to see that his face was fading. The glory, the shining face was fading. Maybe in part because the only way to get the Israelites to obey at least for a little bit was for them to see some visible kind of glory. The lightning, Mount Sinai wrapped in the clouds, Moses' shining face. But Paul is saying all of that was never enough to change anyone's heart. All the theatrics, all the visible glory is never enough to change someone's heart. 
That old covenant method is fading. It was never meant to be the solution. The solution was always going to be the Holy Spirit written on our hearts. And only the Holy Spirit can give us the ability and the desire to obey God, to please God, to glorify God, to love God. This is why Paul says the letter kills. If you only have the law, if you only have the Bible, but you don't have the Holy Spirit, it'll kill you. You'll die. Because you know what God requires, but you do not have the ability nor the desire to obey. And so all you're doing is breaking God's commandments and sinning and storing up wrath for yourself. A true believer, they have the Holy Spirit. If you are a true believer, you have the third person of the Trinity dwelling in you. That's powerful stuff. And that is what Paul appeals to. And he says in verse two, you are our letters of recommendation. There's the proof that this gospel ministry is legitimate. It's because the people have changed. Do you have a desire to obey God? I don't know if that's a weird question, but this is Paul's litmus test. Do you have a desire to obey God? Do you want to? It might not be a 360 degree change overnight, but is there any noticeable degree of change? Is there a new trajectory in your life, your values and your decisions, the way you are as a husband or a wife, a mom or a dad, a friend, a coworker, the way you balance your budget, what you look at, what you watch, how you dress? there's no change, then there's no Holy Spirit. If there's no desire, then there is no Holy Spirit. The New City Catechism explains how the Holy Spirit helps us. It says this, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, comforts us, guides us, gives us spiritual gifts and the desire to obey God. And he enables us to pray and to understand God's word. Is it possible for unbelievers, non-Christians to obey some of God's law? It is possible. However, true conversion is not the same as conformity or compliance. It's important that we understand that. Those who are not true Christians can still conform externally to what Christians do. And they can also comply. We all, by our nature, conform at times just to fit in. And we'll all comply at times out of fear. And people will do that as well by God's common grace. But their motivation is not a desire to glorify God and to please God. They can look the part at the right times. They can come to church 
and do and go through the motions and look like a Christian and fit in, chat people up, join small. They can do all of that. They can conform. They can comply. But there's no change in their heart. There's no desire to obey God and to glorify him. If anything, they're just doing it for themselves because they're getting some kind of social benefit maybe out of it. But the Holy Spirit truly changes hearts. Verse 17 is maybe the key verse here in this chapter. Let's read this. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's such an important verse. When we think about freedom, we think about fewer restrictions. For those of you who are in youth group, parents are out of town, they're out late at night, you have fewer restrictions. You can kind of do whatever you want, stay up as late as you want, invite friends over, take the, I'm not saying you should do it, but take the car out. You just feel like you're more free, fewer restrictions. That is our understanding of freedom. However, this is the paradox here. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and sent the Holy Spirit so that we could be free, so that the Holy Spirit can dwell in us. Free to do what? Free to obey God's law, not freedom from God's law. When we're enslaved, our freedom is limited. There are things we cannot do. Imagine you're in a prison cell. But now that we have the Spirit in us, we're free. Free to do what? free to do what we could never do before because of our sin, that is obey God. Now we can finally, by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, obey. There is obedience in Christianity. Jesus didn't die for you and your sins, so you can go on sinning. He didn't die for you to free you to live however you want. You were already doing that before you became a Christian. No, Jesus died for you so that you could have and experience the greatest freedom and fulfillment. You are looking for that freedom and fulfillment in all of the wrong things. Blaise Pascal, he said that our hearts are an infinite abyss. And we go looking for happiness and to fill this abyss within us. But we're never going to find it in anything else because only an infinite being can fill that infinite abyss, and that is God. And it's only when we meet God, we believe in Jesus, and we abide by his laws, do we have the fullest joy How can you tell if someone is still living by the letter or if they are truly living by the Spirit? Are you trying to obey God with your own effort? Do you think that your own obedience apart from Jesus and faith in him and his death is good enough for you to go to heaven. If you think that, then you're living by the letter. If you think that, relatively speaking, you are more moral than people around you or people in your workplace or people in your neighborhood, then you're also living by the letter. 
You still believe that what you are doing is enough. But it's not. We need Jesus. Romans 8, 3 to 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus did what we could never do, and that is to obey. And his righteousness after obeying is now applied to us. This is why we are accepted before God. It's because of what Jesus did. And when we believe in him, we receive all of his benefits. So then back to this question. If Jesus obeyed for us, why do we still need to obey? Again, the paradox. Jesus obeyed so that we can obey. Not so that you can go and live however you want. Jesus obeyed for our good and our joy. One Christian author, Matt Smethurst, I think he puts it really well. Biblical obedience is not about keeping an arbitrary set of rules. It's about living in accordance with our design, in harmony with our maker. Because he wants us to flourish, he restricts us in order to truly free us. Paradox. He prohibits us to drive us to what is good. He lays boundaries with hands of love. All parents know this. With your hands of love, you restrict your kids so that they may flourish. And God is doing the same thing for us. Those who have the Holy Spirit have a new attitude and view of God's law. I don't believe you can truly have the Holy Spirit and despise the law of God and despise the word of God and always be opposed to it and always have an allergic reaction to it and to always think it's getting in the way of my happiness and fulfillment. No, if we have the Spirit, we have a new view and we recognize it's a good thing and I want to glorify this God who saved me Sam Albury, he's a pastor in Nashville. He writes a lot about biblical sexual ethics because he himself, he's a pastor. He struggles with same-sex attraction. He is unmarried. He has a lot of conversations with people who struggle with the biblical ethic on sexuality. And he says this, God's commands can seem rather arbitrary as though things are permitted or prohibited randomly. It's important with any command then to look at why it's been given. With any prohibition, we must ask, what good thing is being protected by it? What positive stands behind the negative? And he goes on. When it comes to God's sexual ethic, there's a clear rationale for what's commanded. His word doesn't so much show us a theology of sexuality or sexual ethics as it does a theology of marriage. Human marriage, we see repeatedly, is to point us to the ultimate marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. It's a signpost to the big thing God is doing in the universe, drawing together people to belong to his son. That vision explains the contours and boundaries we see in scripture's teaching about marriage. Is there another slide after that? There we go. 
Once we unpack it, we see why God insists that sex is for marriage, since only in a covenantal relationship with him do we have the ability to be vulnerable and intimate. That marriage is between one man and one woman, since God brings together two unlike yet complementary beings in a union, and why Christians are to marry only those in the faith, since our union with Christ means we cannot painlessly unite with someone who doesn't also belong to him. And I think the key thing that he says here is, what good thing is being protected by these prohibitions? It's the Holy Spirit that understands that he says, makes obedience more radiant. He, he admits, he says saying no to some deep emotional and sexual desires felt like a huge cost to him as someone who is same-sex attracted. But he says, and he's discovered there's far more satisfaction in obedience than disobedience. He said that these commands were so unwelcome at first, but they have become a blessing. He says it's not always easy, but it's become radiant. And that is only the work of the Holy Spirit, to see the goodness of what God is doing. Paul upholds the law. We uphold the law just as much as we uphold grace. I, I want to make a couple practical points about obedience. We're talking a lot about it. I do want to say perfect obedience is not possible. It's important that we hear that, we're reminded of that. However, just because perfect obedience is not possible, I think some people think, well, what's the point then? No, there is a point, as Matt Smethard shared and Sam Alberry shared as the Bible teaches for our joy and for our good. Perfection is not possible. Progress is possible. Progress to obey is possible, which means progress towards more joy and more of your fulfillment and more of your satisfaction is also possible. Who doesn't want to be more fulfilled and satisfied? The path towards that is obedience. It's looking at the God law, God's law as being radiant. And we need to look to the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. Richard Lovelace, he was an enormous influence on Tim Keller. He says that in the church today, Christian's relationship with the Holy Spirit is like a bad marriage. You live under the same roof, but you rarely communicate and you don't cherish the relationship. I'm embarrassed to share. That's been the case for me in many ways in my own life. Not understanding and engaging and cherishing the Holy Spirit who is in me not praising and worshiping and praying to the Holy Spirit that is in me. I feel like God was really teaching me this this past week. As I was preparing this sermon on the Holy Spirit, it was Wednesday and I had nothing on paper for this sermon. And I was panicking and I was texting our, texting our pastors and Pastor Harold. I'm like, I'm freaking out. I don't have anything. And I got to a point where I was thinking, would it be possible to get a guest speaker on short notice? Could we pull that off? And I feel like God was teaching me, you need the Holy Spirit. I stopped preparing. My slides were due on Thursday. 
this is Wednesday, I have nothing. You can't have sermon slides if you don't have a sermon. And honestly, and again, it's kind of embarrassing to share this. I think I prayed more over a sermon and prayed and asked for the Holy Spirit more than I ever have in my life. And it was kind of weird at first. Because part of me is, how does this even work? You know, I pray to the Holy Spirit. I'm asking for help. We're such pragmatists. We want something more concrete. But trusting that the Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus in John 16 to be our helper, our advocate, our comforter, I prayed. We have slides. I'm preaching a sermon. But beyond this in our lives, in other areas of your lives, this reliance on the Holy Spirit, at least in my life I know, is, is lacking. And maybe in your own marriages it's lacking. Your parenting it's lacking. And your suffering and your hardships, it's also lacking. And so this is a practical point. It is not very insightful. But it's this. To pray to the Holy Spirit more and ask for help. That's the big practical point. I feel like I really turned a corner in my own faith this past week. I started praying not over my sermon, but for other people, that the Holy Spirit would work in their lives, in my own life. I just started praying more, just asking the Holy Spirit to just do so much in my life. And part of me, I was thinking, why was I not praying this way before? And I want to encourage you to do the same. Would your relationship with the Holy Spirit not be like a bad marriage? Would you communicate and cherish? And I want to close with this. The purpose of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to make us look more like Jesus. We can't do that on our own. The second and last point. The only way to look more like Jesus is to look more at Jesus. Verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You can't be transformed into the image of Jesus without the work of the Holy Spirit and without beholding Jesus. We do the beholding. The Holy Spirit does the transforming. But there is no transforming without beholding. And so if you're kind of frustrated with your sanctification, you just feel like you're not really growing as a Christian, you're not looking more like Jesus, the question is, are you beholding? Are you putting yourself in a position for the Holy Spirit to work? The Holy Spirit isn't just going to do this automatically. There is a partnership here in our sanctification. This word behold, it means to look at something the way you look at yourself in a mirror. It's an interesting term. And what Paul is saying, we need to look at Jesus the way we look at ourselves in the mirror. I've read that people on average look at themselves in the mirror 27 times a day. Paul is saying, we need to, we need to look at Jesus frequently. And he's saying, you need to look at Jesus in such a way that you are so familiar with his face and his character and his features as you are with your own. Nobody looks into the mirror and is startled at who they're looking at and think they're looking at a stranger. We know our faces so well. Paul's saying, you need to know Jesus' face that well. The only way we're going to look like Jesus if we 
behold him. We become so familiar with him. We walk with him. And the way that we're designed, this cuts both ways. The way that we're designed as image bearers of God, we're wired in such a way that whatever we're looking at, we're going to start looking like. That's just the way that we are as humans, the way God created us. And so we're always beholding something. There is always something in front of your face. And whatever you're beholding, that's what you're going to start to look like, and that's what you're going to start to obsess over. Maybe it's your kitchen renovation. Maybe it's the house you're looking to purchase. These are not bad things, but we all know we can obsess over those things. Your next car, your next purchase, how you look, how many likes, how many followers. We can obsess over, the, over these things. And it's no surprise that anxiety and depression are at record highs among teens. And it's no coincidence that it began to skyrocket with the advent of the iPhone and social media. Because the more you're looking at those things, the more you begin to obsess, maybe over your own appearance, your own popularity. This is how we're wired. Paul is saying we need to obsess over Christ. And that's a good thing to obsess over. If there's anything you're going to obsess over, obsess over Jesus. And when you look at him, more, I do not believe your anxiety and depression are going to increase. I think, if anything, you're going to find great peace and comfort. And you're going to begin to look more like him. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is challenging because we live in an age of the infinite scroll. Man, we can spend a lot of time, I can spend a lot of time on my phone it just goes on for literally you'll never reach the end you'll never reach the end there will always be more content there'll always be something else for you to behold and it's easy to find ourselves not beholding Jesus but when we do that's when the holy spirit is working transforming us this is the work of the spirit john 16 jesus says when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Where do we behold Jesus? Because we can't see Jesus physically, visibly. The primary way is in the word. And again, this is going to sound so obvious and not very insightful because you've heard it probably your entire Christian life. But that's the answer. We behold Jesus in the word. And when we're in the word, the spirit is transforming us. The Holy Spirit illuminates. In other words, turns the lights on, not just intellectually, but spiritually when we engage the word. Through the word, the spirit shines light on the sin in our lives hidden in the dark places and moves us towards repentance, comforts the anxious, uplifts the depressed, gives us peace when we're fearful. 
Bible engagement and Bible literacy is at an all-time low in this country. Maybe our phones have something to do with it. We're engaging and we're beholding Jesus less in this country. And I want to say that might be a reason why there is a decline in your satisfaction and joy in life and happiness and sense of fulfillment and purpose. Peace. Maybe you have so much guilt and you're trying to make up for it elsewhere. You're not going to be able to lift that guilt and clear that guilt apart from looking at Jesus. Practically speaking, again, these are not obvious solutions, recommendations. It's not very insightful, but we just launched small groups. I think beholding Jesus is best in a group setting and in community. We see this in the book of Acts. They met together, studied the word together, fellowship together. I think the best way to behold Jesus is together. So if you haven't joined a small group, I really encourage you to join a small group. And on top of that, if you want, you can start your own smaller group. Reach out to a brother or sister, one person, two people, and say, hey, let's meet once a week. Let's meet once a month. Let's just meet, read the Bible a little bit together, talk about it and pray. Let's just behold Jesus together more. If you're a parent, would you find ways to behold Jesus more with your family and with your kids? I know it sounds impossible and it's so difficult with scheduling, See if you can work that into your family routine and schedule. Get a study Bible. The notes are like cheat sheets. They help you understand the word better. We need help. And I want you to know that being spiritual, it doesn't mean you always have to be spontaneous or always feeling it. I think a lot of times you need to be structured and disciplined. And that is where we're going to behold Jesus. And I think most importantly, And you already know this because you're here. We behold Jesus in worship when we gather every Lord's Day. The early believers, they met on Sundays because Sunday is the day Jesus rose from the dead. Worship is Christ-centered. Everything that we do from the call to worship to the songs we sing, the confession, the prayers, it's all pointing to Jesus. This is all so that you can behold Jesus better. And we believe the Holy Spirit is working in our midst. So I want to encourage you. I'm so glad that you're here. Continue to come out to the best of your ability. Don't miss Sunday. Don't miss church. To the best of your ability, Be on time. And I don't say that to be legalistic. I'm saying for your own joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, so that you can behold all of Jesus in our worship service. To not miss out. And one of the best ways we see Jesus is in the sacraments in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate today. And before we go there, join me in a word of prayer. Father God, with unveiled faces, we look to the sacraments. We long to see Jesus in his majesty, his love and grace. Holy Spirit, help us. Minister the good promises of the gospel to the people you love. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.